Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Bachelor Creek. Uh, we're so glad that you have worshiped with us today. Uh, today we're continuing in week three of our series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And what we've discovered over the last couple of weeks is the best way to love your neighbor is by being a good neighbor. And so we've just started off this year as a church figuring out what's it look like to love our neighbors by being a good neighbor. And today, I want to talk with you about this idea, this subject of coming to the table. And I know some of you are probably thinking, is that fried chicken? Are those biscuits real? You better believe they are. It it smells pretty delicious up here. I really should have had breakfast. Uh, You ever go to the grocery store when you're hungry? It's like a bad idea. It's kind of how I'm feeling right now. But we're going to have some fun today talking about coming to the table. I don't know what it was like for you growing up, but for me, there was something special about the table. For me, the dinner table was like a safe haven. It was like a sanctuary. And my mom would make some amazing, some delicious meals. Chicken, mashed potatoes, pasta. She made this dish called New Orleans spaghetti, which was just incredible. And so... Of course, there were, some, there, there were some items that I didn't care for. Like we had this rule at our house that you weren't allowed to leave the table until you were excused. So on those days where we had lima beans, let's just say I sat at the table for a really long time. It was hard, hard to force those down. But in my teenage years, I, I especially look forward to, to, to a meal at the table because as, as an active student involved in, in sports, I, I was constantly hungry. And uh, if, you have, if you're a, a parent of, of a teenage boy, you know you can't make enough food to, to fill their stomachs. But, but I also look forward to every meal because of the people that I was with. I felt safe with my family. And how many of you, like, when your family gets together around the table, things get a little crazy? So, some of you may have uh, really quiet, quaint, polite family dinners. That wasn't us. Like, it it would get loud, there would be some laughing, there would be some arguments. It was always an interesting time. And I can't overemphasize the fact that that I felt safe at the table. And I needed that because life was chaotic and busy. See, we had two working parents. My brother and I were both heavily involved in activities. My my sister had Down syndrome. And and so in the midst of all of that, my, my family made a point to prioritize coming to the table together for a meal as much as we could. But that wasn't the only reason that, that I felt like the table was a safe, safe place because in our family, we had an open dinner table policy. See, what, what, what that meant was the dinner table was always open, and so it wouldn't be uncommon for, for me to, to say, hey, Mom, Nick's coming over for dinner tonight. Hey, Mom, Ben's coming over for dinner tonight. And... My, my friends knew that, and so there would be times where I'd be out on a date with Tara, or I'd be out doing something else, and my, my friends would still come over to eat dinner with, with my family. There was this, this open table. And what my parents understood is that who you eat with is more important than what it is you're eating. Like, like who you gather around the table is really important. What is it about the table? That there's something about the table, wouldn't you agree? That there's something about the table that, that turns strangers into neighbors. 
There's something about the table that turns enemies into friends. And when I look at the the status of our world right now, I look at the division and and the disagreement, and I look at all the the wishful thinking that that justice will come in, in some way, form, or another, I just think, what if we could get around the table more often with people who, who aren't exactly like us? Like, like what, if, what if we could just get around the table with some people and, and just say, won't you be my neighbor? I mean, this is what Jesus did. If you study his life and ministry, so much of it was spent around the table, oftentimes with people who are unexpected, unqualified, and if we're being really honest, undeserving. There's one particular meal that I want to take you to today, and it's the Last Supper. The the Last Supper is when Jesus opened up the table for his 12 disciples. You say, well, did did it look like this table? Well, probably not. But they were in southern Israel, so maybe it was uh, chicken and biscuits. I don't know. But Jesus spread the table for his friends. And the Bible describes it this way. It's Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. And if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. He says this is the new covenant. You say, what's a covenant? A covenant is is a commitment. It's a promise. It's a pledge between two groups, two parties, two individuals. It's a way of relating to God. And so what Jesus is saying is that there's a a new way that's going to be able to open up this relationship between God and man. Because of my body that is going to be broken for you. Because of my blood that is going to be spilled for you. You say, what's Jesus doing here? He's taking this meal, this Passover meal that was celebrated annually that, that all of these people were familiar with that had this this deep ancient symbolism dating all the way back to the Exodus. And he's saying, I'm assigning new symbolism, new meaning to it. So now, every time that you break this bread and every time you pour this wine, you'll think about me. You'll think about my body that was broken for you. You'll think about my blood that was spilled for you so that you can have a new relationship with God. Is anyone grateful for the cross? Is anyone grateful for Jesus, his broken body and blood spilled for us? Thank God for the new covenant. But what's interesting to me about this text is it's not what they were eating, 
It was who was gathered around the table. You see, this food, this wine, this, it, it had powerful symbolism. It had powerful meaning, but none of that mattered if the right people weren't around the table. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you know that Jesus, at the end of his life, he had three years of, of ministry on earth, and he gathered these 12 disciples, these 12 followers that were kind of his crew, his group. Now, I wish we had time this morning to, to look at all 12, but I want to talk about just four of them today. Like I said a moment ago, the, the people who were seated at the table with Jesus were often unexpected and undeserving. Undeserving of the seats that Jesus gave to them. Today, I want to look at four of them. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider who you relate to the most. Who do you relate to the most? With these people around the table, who do you identify most with, with their circumstances and, and their personality? The first one is the one who loved Jesus. The one who loved Jesus. And that's my guy, John. You've probably heard of John before. John wrote the Gospel of John, one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus. He wrote the book of Revelation, the, the last book of the Bible. He wrote three New Testament letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And all throughout John's teachings, all of his writings, there's this predominant theme of love that shows up. John knew that he was deeply loved by Jesus. In fact, he even gave himself a nickname in his own gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he doesn't say this about any of the other disciples, right? How do you think they felt? John feels like Jesus loves him more than the rest of us. Like, what's up with that? Well, you see, John wasn't just part of the 12 disciples. He was a part of this inner core group of three, the, the inner circle that consisted of Peter, James, and John. And they were invited into deeper teachings, deeper miracles, different stuff that, that Jesus had for them, get this, that the other nine weren't a part of. And, and so I love how at the end of John's gospel, he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. Now, at first glance, I have to admit, I thought to myself, how arrogant. How, how arrogant that you would call yourself the disciple who Jesus loved. But, but he didn't refer to any of the other disciples that way. But then I started to wonder. Maybe he just had a, a deeper confidence than I do that Jesus loved him. He had a deeper confidence that, that Jesus loved him no matter what he did or who he was. He just simply loved. How many of you know that if you're not careful, confidence can turn into cockiness? And that was the case for John. There was one occasion where they're walking away from a group of Samaritans, and we've talked about Samaritans over the last couple of weeks, that there are these deep racial tensions between Jews and Samaritans. And the Samaritans had not responded well to the initial reports of Jesus and his teaching. His message of, of the kingdom and of hope and of life. And one of the things that John says is, you know, what we ought to do is we ought to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans because they're not as deserving as we Jews are. 
It's a little bit of a weird thing to say. At another moment, they're sitting at, at a different table with a different meal with Jesus. And this is the first time that Jesus predicts his death. And, and he warns them that the day is coming when his, his life is going to be sacrificed on behalf of their sins. And it's interesting because what John says is, oh, okay, well, when we're with you in glory, can, can I sit at the, the right hand of your throne? It's like, uh, John, is this really the right time to bring this up? It's like someone tells you that they've got one month to live, and you're like, hey, uh, can I have your car? Like, really? Who says that? At the end of John's gospel, he records this scenario where the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Can, can it really be true? And, and Peter and John go running to the tomb. But John makes sure that we know that the one who Jesus loved got there first. The one who Jesus loved outran Peter. The one who Jesus loved stooped in when, when Peter was too chicken. It's interesting that he had to include certain details about their competitive rivalry. So why does that matter? It doesn't. But you see, John let his confidence sort of morph into cockiness. See, John would be the closest thing to a church kid that we have in the 12 disciples. He was probably the only one of the 12 that felt like he was entitled to his seat. That there were times, or just like you and I, John let pride get the best of him. But Jesus still gave him a seat at the table. He still said, come and eat with me. And, and then there's this guy, the one who questioned Jesus. The one who, who questioned Jesus. And that's Thomas. Or, or as you probably know of him as doubting Thomas. Now, what's crazy to me is that this particular nickname that, that Thomas has carried throughout history that this nickname that was assigned to him that we still refer to him as 2,000 years later is based on one thing he said. I mean, how, how would you like it if you were labeled, defined, or stereotyped for thousands and thousands of years because of one incident? That's Thomas. If you don't know the story, after Jesus has resurrected, the tomb is found empty, and Jesus in his resurrected body has begun to reveal himself to a number of people. And the disciples are gathered together in the upper room, and someone says to Thomas, did you hear? Jesus is alive. And Thomas refuses to believe. He says, unless I put my fingers into the holes in the hands of my Savior, I will not believe that it's really him. Now here's the thing. We can call him doubting Thomas all we want to. But you can't blame him for being a doubter. Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, we're told that the, the first people to discover the tomb empty were women. Now, ladies, don't be offended by this. This was the society, this was the culture in their day. A, a woman's testimony at that time was considered invalid in a court of law. 
And so for the women to come and give the initial report, the men were supposed to say, okay, we need to verify it ourselves before we can believe that it's true. So you can't blame him for doubting. Number two, how are you going to blame a man for doubting when no one has ever seen a man resurrect from the dead in the history of the world before? Doubting Thomas. It's crazy. So a day comes when Jesus walks in and the disciples are gathered together in the upper room, the same upper room where they had the Last Supper together. And Jesus walks right past the other disciples and he goes straight up to Thomas. And if I'm Thomas, I'm thinking, here we go. He knows what I've said. He knows that I've questioned him. He knows that that I've doubted him. He's going to bring it up. But Jesus doesn't bring it up. He just says here, touch, feel. You see, I want you to know today that Jesus is not insulted by your doubts. Jesus is not insulted by your questions. If Jesus is insulted or intimidated by anything, it's your unwillingness to bring them up to him. It's the fact that you pretend they don't exist because a good Christian can't doubt, right? A good church-going American can't have questions, right? Wrong. I wonder if Jesus' posture is the same to you as it was for Thomas 2,000 years ago. Touch. Feel. See, Jesus knew that Thomas was going to doubt him. And he still gave him a seat at the table. Then there's this guy. The one who denied Jesus. The one who denied Jesus. It's like, man, I, I, I get it. Someone, who, someone who, who loves Jesus, maybe a little bit of prideful. I understand someone who's got some questions. But, but someone who denies Jesus? Like, really? You're going to give him some fried chicken too? That's Peter. That's Peter. If you know the story of Peter, you know that he was at the center of so many incredible miracles. Walking on water, feeding of the 5,000, and so many others. Peter was in the middle of it all. Now, in fact, Peter's name wasn't originally Peter. His name was originally Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter because Peter means rock. And what Jesus is saying is is on you. On you, Peter, on the rock of of your confession, I'm going to build this thing called my church. But the day comes when Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even if everyone else falls away, I will be with you to the very end. And Jesus says, surely you will deny me three times. How many? Not once, not twice, three times before the rooster crows. So the day comes when Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested. He's drug out to be flogged and crucified. And surely Peter says, I I don't even know the man. Not once, not twice, three times. And then the rooster crows. How could this happen? 
How can somebody who was, who was so devoted to Jesus in a moment's notice, moment's notice suddenly deny him and turn away? Can you relate? You say, I've never denied Jesus. Maybe you haven't denied him with your lips, but have you denied him with your life? You claim to profess Christianity, but you deny him and live practically as an atheist. You see, similar to Thomas's story, the, the, next time that Peter, the, the next time that Peter has a meal with Jesus, it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter's gone back to his old profession. He's gone back to being a fisherman. He's been out all night, and he sees Jesus sitting on the beach cooking breakfast over an open fire. And Jesus calls Peter over to him. And if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, oh, man, here we go. He knows that I've denied him. He's probably going to say, Peter, we talked about this. Like, how, how could you do this? Here, here comes the lecture. But it doesn't happen. They sit down over breakfast, and, and he asks Peter a question. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him this three times. Why three times? Because Jesus wanted to show Peter that he's restored. He is fully restored. What if Jesus has equal measure forgiveness for your failures? What if Jesus has equal amount of grace for your sin? Let's just be real here. Some of us, we're really good sinners. But Jesus is a much greater Savior than we are sinners. Amen? So Peter denies Jesus. But Jesus still gave him a seat at the table. And then there's one more. One who betrayed Jesus. One who betrayed him. I mean, we, we've all got a little bit of, of pride from time to time. We've, we've all got some questions, we've all got some doubts, maybe we've denied Jesus a, a time or two, but how many people can, can really say that they betrayed Jesus? I mean, that's a bit extreme, but that's Judas. That's Judas. What's interesting is Judas basically sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver which in today's U.S. currency is about $264. Can I just ask, is that all Jesus is worth to you, Judas? Is he nothing more than a commodity to be traded? How does this happen? You see, for Judas, he never really understood what this table was all about. For Judas, he was using this table to get to another table. The table of power and influence. The table of, of success and status. And he was willing to do whatever it took to get him there. Maybe we can say it this way. Judas used Jesus for personal gain. Now can we relate to him? I think we can. What's interesting is we find out in one of the gospel accounts that Jesus didn't just give Judas a seat at the table, he gave him a seat right next to him. And this was the, the seat of deepest friendship, most intimate friendship. It was the place of, of deep trust and honor. 
Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And he still gave him a seat at the table. Four men with four different stories. Four different people around the table. And every single one of them got bread. Every single one of them got wine. It's as if Jesus is saying, my grace is sufficient for you, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, or even what you're about to do. My love goes beyond all of that. He still gives them a seat at the table, still gives them bread, still gives them wine. You know, here's the thing that that popped out to me as I was studying this week. Jesus invites us as we are, but he envisions us as we could be. Jesus invites us as we are, but envisions us as we could be. And here's the question for you. If Jesus invited to the table one who loved him, one who questioned him, one who denied him, and one who betrayed him, why would you think even for a second that Jesus would not pull out a chair for you? And if Jesus would pull out a chair for them, would Jesus in 2023 pull out a chair for your white neighbor, your black neighbor, your Latino neighbor? I think he would. Would Jesus pull out a chair for your straight neighbor and your gay neighbor? I think he would. Would Jesus pull out a chair for your Republican and your Democrat and your fill-in-the-blank neighbor? I think he would. Would Jesus pull out a chair for your Christian neighbor, your atheist neighbor, your Muslim neighbor? I don't just think he would. I know he would. I know he would. That's my Jesus. So here's my question to you this morning, Bachelor Creek. Who do you relate to the most? Who do you relate to the most up here? Is it John? Is it Thomas? Is it Peter? Is it Judas? Who do you relate to the most? And if you... Relate to, to, to one of these, I want to ask, what's your next step? As a follower of Jesus, recognizing that he has given you a seat at the table, what is your next step? How are you going to say, I'm drawing closer to him in an intimate relationship. I'm going to, to lean in. And because he loved me first, I'm going to be a better neighbor by loving my neighbor's. In just a moment, we're going to share in communion together. Go ahead and get your communion cup ready. We're going to remember that Jesus made a seat at the table for you and me. And at the table, Jesus invites us as we are. And he envisions us as we could be. If you take the bread, representing his body, given for us. Let's eat. And this cup, representing his spilled blood for us, so that we might have forgiveness of our sins, so, so, that, so that we might be a part of the new covenant 
a way of relating to God, to be in a relationship with our Creator. Let's drink in gratitude. And now that we understand what Jesus has done so that we could have a seat at the table, I want you to figure out who you might invite over to give a seat at the table. Which neighbor, which family can, can you invite over to, to build a relationship with them? To show them just as Jesus showed his friends 2,000 years, years ago, I love you. I invite you as you are. And I envision what our relationship could be. Who are you inviting over for a meal? That's your assignment. This week, invite someone over for a meal. In your bulletin, there's a, won't you be my neighbor hospitality guide. This guide is designed to take the pressure off, to to give you all the, the steps to walk you through how to invite your neighbor over for a meal. It prepares you to be intentional with your neighbors. Use it this week. And there may be some of you here today and you're going, man, I've never really understood the fact that Jesus gave me a seat at the table. I didn't understand that his body was broken, his blood was spilled for me. And listen, it's not too good to be true. It is true. But God will not force you to the table. 2,000 years ago, he sent out an invitation when he hung on the cross with his arms spread wide saying, come one, come all. But it's up to you to RSVP. It's up to you to respond and accept the invitation and say, I will sit at the table in an intimate relationship and an intimate fellowship with Jesus. Because he's not just interested in you becoming part of a church. He's not just interested in you joining some religion. He wants a friendship. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And if you've never stepped out into that relationship, if you've never had your sins forgiven, if you've never been set free, then you can start that relationship right here, right now, this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, there's something about the table. Something happens when we get around the table realizing, God, that you have saved a seat for each and every one of us. And I can tell you, God, I am so deserving of that, so undeserving of that seat. God, I pray each and every one of us would realize that, that you, have, you have made a way, you've, you've invited us to the table. And God, we, we come as we are, but we don't leave that way. God, through you, through your power, you change us from the inside out. Because you sent Jesus to be a perfect sacrifice for us. God, I pray that that we would receive that. Sometimes, God, when we look at what we've done, it's hard to receive that love. It's hard to receive that forgiveness. But God, I I pray that that we would realize that, that Jesus covered it all. There's nothing we can do. There's no place we could go that your love is not there. So help us to receive that. And God, I pray that, that all of us will, will in turn 
make more room at the table. That we'll look at the people in our lives, people who, who don't look exactly like us. Maybe they believe differently than we do. But God would of Jesus and see how he made room for people. He was known as a friend of sinners. Would we invite people into our lives, invite people around our tables? Not just so that they would get to know us better, but so that they would know that you love and care and died for them. God, help us to be good neighbors. Help us to love our neighbors. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.